Well, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. If you would, take them and open to Luke chapter 16, where we come to another parable from the Lord Jesus here in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13 will be our text this morning. Turn there and we can give our attention now to God's Word together. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus, beginning in verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much." If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you what is that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for Your help now that You would illuminate our hearts and minds by Your Holy Spirit, that we would understand savingly and truly the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ that have been revealed in His Word, that the Gospel would be more precious to us when we leave today than when it was when we came in. Father, and that we would be convicted of sin where we need to be convicted, that we would be encouraged where we ought to be encouraged, and that Your church would be built up. Father, we know that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so we pray, God, we plead with You now for Your Holy Spirit's help to build up Your church in and through Your Word. Father, keep me from error. Help us to have discernment as we study the Word of God. Help us to be, Father, built up in this truth. We do pray with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's quite the study in contrast from last week, isn't it? Last week, we looked at one of Jesus' most well-known parables, the parable of the prodigal son. I said that text almost preaches itself. And this week, we come to one of Jesus' most difficult parables, the parable of the dishonest manager, which does not preach itself. It's quite the contrast. As you heard in our reading, this is a challenging parable to interpret. Daryl Bach, in his very fine commentary on Luke, says that verse 8 in this passage is the most difficult verse in the entire Gospel to understand. I think it's verse 9. 
Klein Snodgrass in his comprehensive guide to Jesus' parables lists no less than 17 different interpretive options. Don't worry, I don't have a 17-point sermon. So what are we to make of this surprising and challenging parable? Well, before we look at the details, it would be helpful, I think, to remember a few broad points about parables that ought to guide our study. Think of these points as guardrails that can keep us from making a wreck of things and guide us to the right interpretation. So a few points about parables just to begin. First of all, when it comes to parables, we ought to be mindful of the audience. To whom is Jesus telling the parable? The audience often guides the interpretation. For example, in Luke 15, that we just finished last week, Jesus directed his parables to the Pharisees and to the scribes. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son were all intended to confront the Pharisees' self-righteousness. They were out of step with heaven. Heaven rejoices in the salvation of the lost. The Pharisees don't. The parables confronted them. The audience guides our interpretation. In this passage, the audience is identified in verse 1. Jesus also said to His disciples. So, there is some discipleship connection in this challenging passage. Jesus is talking to you and me, in other words. There's something to learn here about how to follow the Lord. Secondly, when it comes to parables, we ought to note what kind of parable it is. What kind of parable? Not all parables are alike. Some parables are simple similes. The kingdom of heaven is like. Some parables are confrontational, like the parable of the wedding feast. They, they cause the listener to pass judgment upon himself. Some parables are narratives, like the Good Samaritan, the plot and the characters reveal the point and they have some connection with everyday life. Not all parables are the same. In our passage, we have a crisis parable. That's what it's called. It's a crisis parable. The character in the parable faces a crisis and he takes action in light of that crisis. So think of the parable of the friend at midnight in Luke chapter 11. Do you remember that parable? A man has guests who arrive in the middle of the night, but the man has no bread to feed them. That crisis leads the man to do something very bold. He wakes up his neighbor in the middle of the night and asks for bread. The point of that parable was not that we should be rude and wake our neighbors up in the middle of the night. Rather, the point was that we ought to be bold when we pray. We ought to be bold in prayer before God. The crisis created the action. Our parable is very similar. It's a crisis parable that calls Jesus' disciples to take action. Finally, and most importantly, when it comes to parables, we ought to avoid over-interpreting them. This is really important. One of my professors used to say that the key to interpreting parables is to know when to stop interpreting them. And that's the case in this text. Not every detail is intended to have a one-to-one -one correspondence to something in our lives. Not every character is meant to represent you or me or God or someone else in the world. The key to interpreting parables is knowing when to stop. And that's really important in this text. As we're going to see, Jesus is really making only one point in this parable. It's the last sentence in verse 8. And then He follows that up with some lessons in verses 9-13. to but the point of the parable is very narrow. It's very specific. It's just one thing. 
So let's just get it out of the way up front. Jesus is not commending dishonesty in financial dealings. No more than He was commending rudeness in the parable of the friend at midnight. Drawing that specific lesson that Jesus wants us to take advantage of people in financial contracts, drawing that specific lesson would be over-interpreting the parable. Pushing the details too far. Beyond what Jesus intends. The point of the parable, according to Jesus, is actually very narrow. Of course, that raises the question, what is the point of this parable? I'm glad you asked me. That's how I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning. The sermon is going to have two sections. And each section is built around a question. In the first section, we're going to ask this question. What is the point of this parable? My aim is going to be to answer that question in one sentence and then to show you how I got there. Then in the second part of the sermon, we're going to ask what lessons should we draw from this parable? There are three from verses 9 to 13, and my prayer is that the lessons will help us put the point of the parable into practice. So what is the point of this parable? What are the lessons we ought to draw? That's the plan. With that plan in place, let's get started on the details. What is the point of this parable in verses 1 through 8? That's the first question. I'm going to give you my answer up front. The point of the parable is this. Wise Christians ought to use the resources of this age in service of the age to come. Let me say that again. The parable teaches us that wise Christians ought to use the resources of this age in service of the age to come. Now, let's start in verse 1 and see how we get to that answer. The parable opens with a manager who is in trouble. Notice verse 1. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. In Jesus' day, household managers or stewards were often entrusted with significant levels of authority, particularly over the financial affairs of an estate. Managers were even viewed sometimes as the owner's authorized representative. So it was an important job, lots of authority, lots of trust. But here in verse 1, the manager is in trouble. He's been wasting his owner's possessions. It's the same word that Jesus used in chapter 15 to describe the prodigal son who squandered all of his money. Same word. He's throwing it away. The manager is wasting the money. Naturally, the owner is pretty upset. Look at verse 2. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The game is up, in other words. The owner wants to see the books, and when he looks at the books, he'll find the evidence that convicts the manager. But as Jesus comes to verse 3, notice that the manager has a very short window of time. He's going to be fired, but it hasn't taken effect immediately. This is key, friends. Think of what the manager knows. He knows that judgment is coming. He knows that his future is in doubt. But he also knows that he has time to do something about it. He has time to take action. Indeed, there's a sense of urgency to the manager's deliberation. Notice verse 3, where he admits that he's too soft to work and he's too proud to beg. The walls are closing in. He sees that. But he also has this small window of opportunity. And in verse 4, the manager hits upon an idea. Notice his plan. I have decided what to do. 
so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Friends, the point here is that the manager is forward-thinking. He has the future in view, and his plan is designed to take action now that will provide him with a viable future. He's forward-thinking. Verse 5 tells you his plan. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Now it's clear what the manager is hoping for, isn't it? He's reducing each debtor's amount in hopes of winning their favor in the future. He does the same thing to a different degree in verse 7. And these are sizable reductions. This would be like your bank calling you and saying, hey, guess what? The rest of your mortgage is canceled. Or your student loan debt is forgiven. They're sizable reductions. And it's clear what the manager is aiming for. He's trying to buy favors. He's trying to buy their goodwill so that once his his termination goes into effect, perhaps he'll have a job with one of these people. Again, he's forward-thinking. In light of what is coming, the manager leverages his position in the present in order to prepare for the future. Then comes the difficulty. The part of the parable that is challenging, Jesus introduces a twist. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, we might expect verse 8 to say the master condemned the dishonest manager, but that's not what it says. It says he commended him. In crisis parables, there's often a twist. This is the twist. The master commends the manager for taking advantage of the situation. How should we understand this? This commendation. There's a number of suggestions to explain what the manager has done and therefore make sense of the twist in verse 8. There's a number of options. One option is what we might call the lost commission interpretation. In this view, what the manager has done is not reduce the actual debt, but eliminate the commission that he stood to gain from collecting the debt. So in this sense, the manager wasn't cheating his master, he was taking the financial hit himself. The problem, however, is that we're dishonest in verse 8. It's literally unrighteous. That makes the lost commission interpretation pretty unlikely. Another possible view is what we might call the hidden interest interpretation. The law of Moses prohibited Jews from charging interest on loans to other Jews. But to get around that prohibition, the interest charge was often just baked into the contract in a way that you couldn't see. So if a gallon of oil was loaned out for $10, I would charge you $12, and the $2 was the interest, and I just hid it in the contract. I just baked it in. So in this view, what the manager has done has eliminated the illegal interest. And the reason why the master commends him is because if he rebukes him, then it proves that the master is a lawbreaker, and he's in trouble. Now, the problem with this view is that there's nothing in the parable to suggest that it's correct. It's a rather subtle interpretation that requires you to know a whole lot about Jewish contracts in order to make the interpretation. So, we're back to the question. How should we understand the commendation of the dishonest manager? 
Well, I'm a simple guy, so I opt for the most simple interpretation, and it's the one that Jesus tells us in verse 8. Notice again what the manager is commended for, and by extension, what he is not commended for. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for what? For his shrewdness. The manager is not commended for being dishonest. That's hardly Jesus' point. Rather, he's commended for being shrewd. The idea is to act wisely, to act prudently, to be sensible, especially in light of what is coming. And friends, that's what the manager has done. In light of the future that he faces, a future that is certain and that's going to be difficult, the manager takes action now. He's not apathetic. He doesn't drag his feet. He leverages his position today in order to address what he knows will be his future. In that sense, Jesus is not commending the manager's action, but his attitude, his mindset that led to the action. Just like the parable of the friend at midnight was not commending rudeness, so also Jesus is not commending dishonesty, he's commending wisdom. Forward thinking, quick on your feet, shrewdness. He's calling His disciples to recognize the necessity of acting today in light of what is to come and to do so without delay. Now, how do we know that this interpretation is correct? Well, again, look to the text. The second half of verse 8 is Jesus' explanation of the parable. And so here's the point. Friends, straight from Jesus. Look at the end of verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Friends, that is a how much more argument from Jesus. The sons of this age refer to unbelievers while the sons of light represent believers. Jesus is making a how much more argument. It goes like this. If unbelievers act this wisely to prepare for their earthly future, then how much more should God's people act with wisdom to prepare for their eternal future? If unbelievers live this way, how much more should you live with wisdom and shrewdness as well? You see, it's actually a rebuke. It's a rebuke from Jesus to His disciples. Jesus is challenging His disciples to display the kind of forward-thinking shrewdness that the manager displays in the parable. And if you think about it, which I hope that you're thinking, if you think about it, this is a rebuke that Christians in all ages need to hear. The reality is that compared to citizens of this world, Christians, I'm talking about you and me, Christians do often show a surprising level of inattention to spiritual realities. Unbelievers are often very focused on leveraging their resources for earthly gain. But how often do we as Christians fail to leverage our resources for spiritual gain, for eternal things? Think of how committed people are to building their retirement portfolios. There's nothing wrong with saving for retirement, by the way. Don't overinterpret my sermon. There's nothing wrong with saving for retirement. You should do that. But it makes a good illustration here. Think of how committed people are to building their retirement portfolios. 
They watch their spending. They think about the future. They plan their investments. They shrewdly and wisely examine where to put their money in order to maximize their returns. It's all very prudent, isn't it? It's acting in the present in order to prepare for the future. But compare that to how little attention we display for our eternal portfolios. Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. But if we're honest, we don't give that nearly as much thought as we give our 401k. And yet the 401k is going to turn to dust and that treasure in heaven will last forever. Shouldn't we be at least as concerned for heavenly treasure as we are for earthly gain? Shouldn't we display at least as much drive to leverage everything that we have in this age in light of the age that is to come? The answer is yes. That's the point of the parable. It's a call to forward-thinking wisdom. Wise Christians ought to use the resources of this age in service to the age to come. If worldly people leverage this life for temporary gain, then how much more should we be leveraging our lives for eternal treasure? It's a rebuke. And that leads to the second question that we want to answer as we think about this passage. What lessons should we draw from this powerful parable? What lessons should we draw? Or to ask it another way, how do we employ such eternally minded leverage? Well, beginning in verse 9, Jesus draws a number of lessons from the parable. There's three of them. Let's note each one just briefly so that we can be the kind of wise Christians who leverage their resources today in light of the day that is to come. Lesson number one, generosity increases our eternal joy. Generosity increases our eternal joy. Notice what Jesus says in verse 9. This is the most direct, the most immediate application of the parable. Verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now this is also a pretty difficult verse. But the first step to understand this verse is that phrase, unrighteous wealth. You see it there? By that phrase, this is important, by that phrase, Jesus does not mean wealth gained in unrighteous ways. Rather, He means the wealth of this age. The temporary wealth that will corrupt your heart unless you steward it wisely. The wealth that will lead to unrighteousness unless you use it well. And so, Jesus' point in verse 9 becomes a bit clearer. Instead of using the wealth of this age to serve yourself, use it to serve others. Make friends by the means of this world's wealth. Be generous in serving others with what God has given you. Now, why should disciples live this way? Well, for one, because worldly wealth will one day fail. There will come a day when even the richest person on earth will stand before God with nothing, and on that day, no amount of money will be able to save you. So if we know that all the things of this age are going to turn to dust, isn't it wise to spend up those resources now for eternal gain? Yes. 
Be generous because your worldly wealth is going to fail anyway. And that's the most important reason why disciples ought to be generous in this age. Because generosity increases our eternal joy. Notice that phrase, so that they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus is not saying that the way we use our money somehow earns our way into heaven. No one is saved by being generous. Those saved people are marked by generosity. Rather, Jesus' point is that the way we use our wealth in this age redounds to our credit in the age that is to come. This is how we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, by being generous on earth with what God has given us. So, I take it that in God's economy, every act of generosity done in faith increases the Christian's joy in the eternal kingdom. How can you have increasing joy in heaven? I don't know, but that's what I take the text to be saying. Every act of generosity done in faith increases our joy. Every deed done in God-honoring stewardship deepens the sweetness of hearing Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. This is why Jesus can say, even a cup of cold water in My name, you do it to Me. Every act of generosity done in faith increases our joy in the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, this is a powerful motivation to leverage everything you have in this life for the glory of God. You can't keep it anyway, so you might as well use it for what you can never lose. This ought to reshape how we think about what God has given us to do with our lives. It really does affect every possible area of your life. If you want to frustrate me, tell me that doctrine is not practical. Because here's some doctrine, and here's a difference that it makes. It should reshape every area of our lives. For example, when I use the gifts God has given me to build a successful business that contributes to the ministry of the Gospel and cares for the needs of others, I'm storing up treasure in heaven. The treasure of joy with God in Christ. My father has never preached a sermon in his life, but he owns a company that has helped take care of people's needs in very generous ways. I take it that though he's never preached a sermon, of which I've preached 300 or so, I take it that my dad will still hear deeply and sweetly, well done. Why? Because he's leveraging what God gave him for eternal credit. When I faithfully give what I can to bless the church, even when the amount is small, I'm storing up treasure in heaven. The treasure of knowing that my life demonstrated the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. When I display hospitality, when I care for the least of these, when I embrace ministries of adoption and caring for elderly parents, when I invest my time in discipleship, or any other costly act of generosity, I'm storing up treasure in heaven that cannot fail, and that leads to joy. Friends, that's how you leverage the wealth of this age for the sake of eternity. And that's precisely what Jesus is calling His disciples to do. Don't let the world outdo the church in thinking wisely about the future. Don't let the world outdo the church. Instead, let the church outpace the world in generously using our earthly treasure for heavenly treasure that cannot fail. Get it? This is how God wants us to live. 
It goes beyond just coming into this room and singing songs and hearing sermons. It begins here and it flows out there. That's lesson number one. Generosity in this age increases our eternal joy. Lesson number two, verses 10 and 10 to 12. Character is revealed in the small things. Character is revealed in the small things. Verse 10 is a proverbial application of the parable. Look at verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Whether it's something big or small, character is character. That's Jesus' point. There's no substitute for it. In fact, you could probably put it more pointedly. If you want to know someone's character, watch how they handle the so-called small things of life. Do they keep their word in small matters? Do they follow through on things that could be easily overlooked? Do they give their best effort on things that promise little return? That's character. That's where character is revealed. Not in big moments, of which you have like three in your whole life. Not in big moments, but in small, quiet moments of every day. Jesus then applies that to our spiritual lives. Look at verses 11 and 12. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? I've heard wise, older, godly men say that this life is preparation for the life that is to come. This life, preparation for the life that is to come. That's not to minimize life in this world, but it is to put things in their proper perspective. If we have not been faithful with something as temporary as money, how can we be entrusted with the lasting wealth of heavenly things? That's what Jesus is saying. If you haven't been, haven't been faithful with the temporary stuff that's going to burn up in the end, who's going to entrust to you the things that are already your own? The eternal things. And I don't know how all of this works, but the New Testament is pretty clear that believers will have definite responsibilities and perhaps even possessions in the age to come. Passages like 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 5 speak of believers having some level of responsibility to rule and reign with Christ in the age to come. And even that phrase, treasure in heaven, I take to be more than merely metaphorical. That it suggests some kind of reward. And so I take verses 11 and 12 in this passage to be teaching that we ought to be faithful now in order to prepare for what we will be entrusted with then. Again, I don't know how all of the details work, but here's what I do know. I want to be faithful. I want our church to be faithful. I want to be a good steward now, particularly in the small things, so that the Master will entrust to me true riches in the age to come. He who's faithful in a little will be faithful in much. He who's not faithful in a little will not be faithful with much. And so we ought to ask ourselves these kinds of questions. How am I using my money to serve myself or to serve the work of the Gospel? Do I hold on to things as though they belong to me? Or am I generous towards others particularly towards those in the church. 
Do I give the best of myself to my most important callings? To my spouse and my family, if God has so called me, to my church, to the lost, and then to my job? Do I give the best of myself to my core callings? Or do I do what most people in the American church do, and that's give the leftovers to my core callings? Am I a person of integrity in small things, even things that no one else sees? Am I a person of integrity? Friends, that's the lesson of verses 10 through 12. Character is revealed in small things, and character cultivated now, now, prepares us for what is to come. Lesson number three from verse 13. Stewardship reveals what we worship. Stewardship reveals what we worship. Jesus speaks in absolute terms to close the passage. Look at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or, will he, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. To put it simply, in the absolute terms that Jesus uses, a disciple cannot live with a divided allegiance. It's not possible. We must follow the Lord with wholehearted devotion. Divided allegiance leads to unfaithfulness. And one of, one of the greatest threats to our allegiance is money. Jesus uses the word mammon here. If you grew up on the King James like I did, He says you cannot serve God and mammon. That's a word that encompasses more than money. It's all of your earthly possessions in their entirety. All of your material stuff. Those material possessions often compete with God for our allegiance. It's interesting to me that here in this verse, when Jesus is going to put something alongside God to rival Him, He chooses money. Almost like a rival deity. Of course, money can never replace God, but that's often how money functions, isn't it? As a rival for our trust and for our confidence. Instead of trusting in the Lord, we trust in our possessions. Instead of anchoring our confidence in Christ, we anchor it in our money. Disciples cannot have divided allegiances. And perhaps the greatest threat to our allegiance is our mammon, our possessions, our money, our stuff. So, if that's the greatest threat, how do we avoid it? Simply put, by listening to Jesus' teaching in this parable. You see how verse 13 ties it all together? Instead of worshiping our possessions, we leverage our material resources to faithfully serve the kingdom of God. We live generously. We view what we have now as preparation for what is to come. You see, verse 13 is the summarizing principle that wraps the whole passage up. How we steward our possessions reveals what we worship. And the way to deepen our worship is to be more faithful in our stewardship. If we hold on to our money, it reveals that our money is likely our God. But if we faithfully use our money for Christ's sake, then it reveals that we have a greater treasure than money, namely, Jesus Christ. And so that's where we conclude. All of life is meant to be lived in light of Jesus Christ and His coming into this world. Friends, we ought to be regularly stunned 
by the absolute nature of Jesus in the Gospels. You cannot serve God and money, he says. He wants all of your allegiance or you are not his disciple. All of life is meant to be lived in light of Jesus Christ and his coming into the world. That's the great crisis of our lives, of our age, that Christ has entered into this world, that the kingdom of God has come, that it's at hand. And that one day the Lord Jesus will return and we will all stand before the Lord. That reality ought to shape how we live each and every day in the present. Indeed, that reality ought to create in us a wise approach to life where we are stewarding and leveraging what we've been given, especially our material resources for the sake of the gospel, for the good of others, and for the glory of God in Christ. All of life, all of life meant to be lived before the face of God in Christ. And there's no escape there. He wants all of you, all of you, beginning with what you own. And He's telling you to leverage it now for the sake of what is to come. I pray that this passage has helped us go farther down that road of discipleship. I hope it has. And I pray that God's Spirit will now take the truth of this text and bear generous fruit in our lives, even the fruit of treasure in heaven. Would you pray with me to that end? Let's pray together. Father, it's difficult in these passages where there's no place to hide, where we are all brought exposed before the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, and where we are called to take account for how we live, Father, and how we are stewarding our lives, including our possessions and our time and our resources, how we're stewarding those things and what it reveals about the state of our hearts and what we worship. We pray, Lord, that we would be humble enough to be corrected where we ought to be. And we pray, God, that we would be emboldened by the promise of Your Word, that he who's faithful in a little will be entrusted with much. Lord, help us to labor today and to live today in light of the day that is to come, help us to be faithful with what we've been given today so that we might be entrusted, Father, with much to Your glory in the age to come. Help us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Let's stand. What better way to respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing that this is our song from age to age, that all things, all of our resources, all of this earth, everything in it will come under the Lordship of Christ. And that forever we will get to sing of that glory, of that power, of that might that He has. And so let's call ourselves to singing His